you must be wondering what in the world those high and lofty words have to do with science. I'm not going to tell you specifically, I'm not going to exegete that passage, but uh, hopefully by the end you'll see why I wanted to begin there in particular. But before I begin, I thought it would be appropriate to begin to summarize um, a number of things that have been discussed during this conference yesterday and through today. Things about uh, genres, literary features, allegory, the history of interpretation, commentary on deities. You will remember that um, uh, John Card began uh, with a brief statement from, I think, a website or a newspaper, and it reminds us reminds us of the literary feature called the literary inclusio. Literary inclusio is something we find in the beginning of Psalm 1 and the end of Psalm 2, suggesting actually that Psalm 1 and 2 uh, might more anciently have been one song. So it says, Asher ha'ish, asher lo halach. Blessed is the man. And then at the end of Psalm 2, you again hear this ashray, this blessed. And so at the beginning of the conference, I suggest there is a literary inclusio from the beginning to the end. At the beginning, you were blessed with a noisy American creationist. And of course, at the end, you'll now be blessed with a concluding noisy American creationist. We must not miss here the chiasm because we began with a noisy American young earth creationist, and now we will end chiastically with the earthy young American creationist noise. <laughs> and as far as numbers are concerned, I think I must disagree with Augustine on number six being perfect, because of course six is the number of the beat, and so it was appropriate that our sixth talk was vain philosophy. <laughs> And now, of course, in the seventh lecture, you will find the promise of peace, perfection, and rest, <laughs> alliteration, and tricolon. Authority. Numerous authorities compete for our compliance. In every case, we either assent to the authority and follow it, or reject the authority and do something else. A simple illustration of traveling from one place to another will help. Say, for example, you'd like to purchase new tiles for your bathroom. Knowing your next-door neighbor has a very tastefully decorated home, you ask him for a recommendation. You accept his authority in all matters of decor. However, you're not too sure about the directions he gave you to the location of tile world. So you get out a map, trumping your neighbor's authority with the map um, in matters of geography. You get in your car and set out on your chosen course. As you travel down the road, you encounter traffic lights and speed limit signs, obeying them because they are established by a civil authority, which you accept. You also respect certain conventions, which, while having no formal administration, make your life easier if maintained. At a merger of two road junctions, you allow one car in from the other side before merging in yourself. Or as, and maybe I perceive this as a foreigner more, local villagers were known, when you're on that very narrow road between the villages and you're approaching one another at 50 miles an hour, you gracefully drive up into the hedgerow and pass one another. <laughs> Out on the motorway, another car stops suddenly in front of you. Thinking fast, you decide to change lanes abruptly, cutting off another driver. The rule of not hitting another vehicle had greater authority in that moment than courteous signaling and lane changes. Implicit in this action was a conscious decision to drive too close to the vehicle in front of you, revealing yet another set of authorities assented to 
and rejected. Eight minutes later, when you arrive at Tile World, you are not conscious of the fact that you have exercised nearly 100 decisions about authorities demanding your obedience. In many of these instances, you have dealt with conflicting authorities, deciding among them without much conscious concern for the fact that you have broken one or another rule or mediated between them. Every day, in every moment, we engage with competing authorities. It is a regular part of our existence and often causes us no cause or concern. Yet when we come to examine matters more closely, we see just how difficult these questions can be. As Christians, we tend to be hyper-conscious of authority at every moment seeking to do God's will. When authorities become matters of discussion, we do our best to codify the directives of those authorities, such as civil laws of the state, licensing requirements of professional organizations, or even the hermeneutics of a given confessional tradition. These rules are always fallible, never airtight. The reason a good set of rules is so difficult to establish is that our ability as rational agents to account for human behavior is inferior to the complexity of human behavior itself. Let me just repeat that again. The reason a good set of rules is so difficult to establish is that our ability as rational agents to account for human behavior is inferior to the complexity of human behavior itself. We are God's image bearers, created as kings on this earth. We have powers of thought and action in the world that we literally do not comprehend. We do not fully understand or appreciate. So glorious and wonderful is our nature as God's special creation, a surgeon, a poet, even a sports fanatic, are all perpetually in awe of our natures, intricate, delicate, and extremely powerful. As theologians and students of the scriptures, we are awed by the complexity and difficulty of the divine nature. In this context, we can lose sight of a fact better remembered by non-religious scholars in the humanities, that the human personage is also highly complex and mysterious. It is one of many ways in which we bear the image of God. Of course, there are many ways in which we are quite unlike the divine archetype. One very important is our own language. God speaks, and it is so. But in contrast, our speech is derivative, a description of things already exist existing, not a determination of things that are. God's speech is determinative of reality. Ours is decidedly not. We see the reality forming of God's speech not only in the act of creation, but also in Jesus' calming of the storm and the testimony of the Roman commander who understood what it meant to give an order and have it followed. Recognizing this vast difference between us and the Creator is supposed to immediately direct us to worship and admiration of God, as it did for Ezekiel. However, when sin is added, this simple truth becomes the basis for much of our travail in public, public and private life. Sin and Satan take advantage of our limitations in order to distort and pervert matters. Our creature nature, which is meant to turn us in every moment to worship of the Creator, becomes the foothold for dispute. Our imperfect laws and representations of things become, instead, occasions for dissension, accusation, and even war. So this conference has been devoted to studying the biblical theology of creation in light of natural science, or in view of questions coming from science, and many have traveled here. I'd like to add to what has been said so far by offering a vantage point so familiar to us, at least I think very familiar to us, but nevertheless often overlooked. 
At stake in these discussions are the authority of the Bible and the authority of science. I'm guessing no one in this room would deny that both the Bible and the natural sciences have at least some authority sometimes. Of course, we want to say more than that. But for this group, it is important to remember that the natural sciences are not totally irrelevant. They establish authorities that we grant when we go to the doctor, when we use a variety of technologies at home or at work. The natural sciences are a part of our fundamental understanding of the world around us, so much so that older representations of the world seem to us quaint myths, laughable, and only of historical interest. Understanding how we are governed by authorities, in general, brings us to some very basic questions in the doctrine of man, anthropology, theologically speaking. When speaking about the creation, we must not forget that we, too, are created. And this is a note that we've already heard mentioned several times, especially last night. So, I have three uh, areas that I'll speak on. First is the authority of the Bible, then the authority of science, and then finally I'll come, come back around to the question of supreme authority. So, the authority of Bible. I'll begin with a, a historical example. I mostly work in the history of science, and there's lots of things that we could look at, and I just picked this one out because you've probably never heard it before. The early 19th century French mathematician, Augustin Louis Cauchy, is famous for putting calculus in the form that is used today. Any scientist here will know who exact, exactly who I'm talking about. Uh, even uh, economists might have heard of some of his rules. His publication output was enormous, many volumes about this wide, and his name has been attached to several mathematical tools and operations. He was born in 1789, which is a year you should know, the year of the French Revolution, and as a young man was among the first generation of revolutionary children. So he was growing up and going to school with these, these, uh, that generation. Yet he was a faithful Roman Catholic, consorted with pious Jesuits, who at the time were officially banned from France, and stood against atheism, libertarianism, and the immorality of his time. He was a godly, faithful Christian. He was not unaware of the fact that science was being used as a polemical tool against the Christian faith, attempting to remove the authority of the Bible from the intellectual sphere. In a lecture course uh, he gave in 1833, he explained that after submitting scientific discoveries to the examination of the scientific community, they must be examined by yet another authority. I quote now, Secondly, one must reject without hesitation any hypothesis which is in contradiction with revealed truths. This point is paramount, and I say it not in the interest of religion, but in the interest of the sciences, since the truth is never in contradiction with itself. It is by neglecting this rule that some scholars have had the misfortune of consuming precious time in wasted efforts, which could have been happily employed in making useful discoveries. And, and in effect, Remarkable works could have been added to publications included in our scientific journals. If religion had always guided the pen of these authors who, believed for a while to have discovered that the zodiacs of Dendra and Esna were 2,000 years old, this was an archaeological discovery at the time, that man descended from a polyp, that he had existed on earth from eternity, that the flood was a myth, that the creation of man and animals is essentially by chance, and from our days one still sees them leave land on isles in the great ocean that Native Americans form a species of men distinct from our own, etc. Yes, forbidding false pleasures, religion only works to open to him a new source of ineffable joy and prepares his happiness. Likewise, in imposing on the mind of the scholar certain rules 
It only works to contain his imagination in just limits and to spare him of the regret of being left to be abused by false systems or fatal illusions. Koshi's attitude towards the way in which scientific and biblical authority interact is unmistakable. From evolution and continental drift to archaeology and philology, the Bible acts as a clear marker of what conclusions may or may not be entertained. Our question is, does a high view of the scriptures demand this approach? Koshi was a member of the Academy of Sciences in France, and in no way ignorant of the power of science to uncover nature. Yet he still felt science needed some reining in. We cannot ignore the social and political context of his attitude, though. He had lived through revolutionary France and was speaking against the way science had been manipulated into a club for beating up Christianity. Nearly 200 years later, with many of the same questions before us, we too must examine what motivates us to attack or defend particular scientific viewpoints. Regularly flying the flag of biblical authority, I think, is appropriate, but the cloth from which we fashion our banner may tear or decay in ways that the message does not. We must not confuse the integrity of the message with the fabric on which it is emblazoned. Defending biblical authority is required. How best to pursue it is open to discussion. So as far as I can see it, both in the past and the present, all discussions and debates between biblical doctrines of creation and the natural sciences reduce to one's understanding of biblical authority. The reason that evangelicals become so heated in these debates is not that a particular argument about divine design or interpretation of radiometric dating is so important, but that they sense that biblical authority is under threat. It would perhaps be better to put this fact out front rather than be distracted by arguments about the intricacies of the natural sciences. More than anything, what may help us refocus our attention on the centrality of biblical authority in this area is the rising voices of many evangelical evolutionists, such as R.J. Berry, Dennis Alexander, and Francis Collins. All of these men profess the name of Christ and have very conservative theologies, including a commitment to biblical authority. This resulted in the need to distinguish what one means by an assent to biblical authority, of course. For example, does the Bible's instruction not to steal really need to be qualified? I don't think so. Here, biblical authority is uniformly maintained as universal. And the rest of the Ten Commandments, of course, they work similarly. What about the biblical injunction to be charitable to the poor and oppressed? Here, some qualifications might come up, such as obligation to one's family, obligations to members of the church, um, uh, but all regulated by the Bible itself. Now, what about the authority of the Bible in other spheres, such as the workplace? Does the Bible tell us how to bake bread, cut wood, or manage a database? With the, with the exception of the broad statement, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God, one would be inclined to say, no, the Bible does not tell me how to cut wood. It might tell you when and where, other such things. It is from these less controversial arguments that some evangelical scientists begin to argue that the Bible is not authoritative in every sphere, or at least, if it is, certain rational qualifications need to be applied. The how of doing scientific research seems to fall into the same category as the how of baking bread. Continuing the argument, you hear the popular phrase, the scriptures teach you how to get to heaven, not how the heavens go. If you're like me, you shudder at this statement because the Bible most certainly does teach you how the heavens go. They go by God's making it so in every moment, in every place. God speaks, and it happens. 
and evangelical evolutionists will maintain biblical authority in saying that God created the world, but will deny biblical authority on the how of that same creation. But the Bible clearly tells us how God said so. What we need, then, is a distinction of hows, both with biblical warrant. And you could look at a, a really good example. I think it's Jonah chapter 4, uh, verses 5 to 11. That's the instance where Jonah is looking down over the city of Nineveh, and he's feeling tired and weary. And God causes this plant uh, to grow up and shade him, and then he causes a worm to eat it, and the scorching east wind comes and it dies. You get there two levels. The passage from Jonah does just that when it speaks of the worm and the scorching wind, the distinction of hows. God spoke a series of natural causes to bring about a very specific result. God's speech was the how at one level, and the natural causes were the how at another. This is a distinction distinction of divine speech acts and human speech acts, where the former constitutes reality, and the latter is the human derivative description of reality, although in this case given by God. While Genesis 1-2 contains some such details, it is lacking in what would be essential for a close parallel, though, to the Jonah passage. We simply are not given the full set of details for a good, clear description of the creation event according to natural causes. Thus, at one level, we do know, we do know how the heavens were made by the speech of God, but we do not have a catalog of natural causes on the order of human description. We must remember, though, that the creation was a unique event. With no precedent. If any causal order was to be given to it, it is only in terms of a now existing causal order, and there is no guarantee that such present terms appropriate to a now existing natural order would be appropriate for the act of creation. I, I say this only as a caution, that our expectations should be modest if we're looking in that direction. In no way then is biblical authority undermined by the fact that we only have the how of creation in terms of God's speech act and are lacking the how in human speech acts of description. What we can rightfully expect is that any causal account of the natural world in human terms that we might subsequently add to fill in that causal account be consistent with the account of God's speech acts in carrying out his will. And in doing so, we cannot ignore the causal details that are given. So we do have some in Genesis, although not not a complete set. Things like the fact that Adam was made out of dirt. That is a good parallel to Jonah's worm in the scorching east wind. The result is that we are faced with a mixture of specificity and ambiguity in the creation account. On both sides, we find a maximization, on both sides of uh, of the debate, I would say, we find a maximization of either the specificity or the ambiguity. So we've got on one side more liberal interpreters making much of the ambiguity and more conservative the specificity. Liberal commentators need to mind the fact that the Bible remains authoritative in its claims that God created the world by his speech, and that whatever causal account is spelled out by us, such an account could only have come forth by God saying it is so. The world is not an autonomous place. God is sovereign over all. Likewise, the conservative commentator needs to be content that the causal order expressed in human, shall say scientific, terms is limited The Bible is authoritative in what it says, but it is far from complete. We must divert from the totalian ambition on either side. So now the authority of science. As I illustrated in the beginning, in ordinary experience, we recognize a variety of authorities. As Christians, the Bible holds for us an incontestable authority, but we do not go to it for all things. We do not go to the Bible for the rules of the road. 
or for how to make a birthday cake or to understand the workings of a clock. Now, I'm not about to make the argument I just refuted above, but to take this in a different direction. The point is that, again, humans are the image of God and not identical to God. God knows a thing in the world as an architect. We know most things in the world only derivatively. That is, only after our encounter with them. We do not have an infinite mind as God does, with an a priori knowledge of everything. We know most th- about most things in an a posteriori fashion. There are many things that the Bible does not tell us, so we have to ask the natural world. We use our senses and our reason to put all the pieces together. This is the derivative knowledge which we construct, construct like unto the knowledge of God, but not identical to his. Knowing the world is one of the chief ways by which we carry out our kingdom's dominion command. And I don't need a 20th century French philosopher to tell me that knowledge is power, since it is built into the human nature through the covenant with Adam. Within this covenant, the naming of the creatures was one of Adam's first tasks in organizing natural knowledge into a system which he could manage and, more importantly, control to useful ends. The point to take away here is that extra-biblical knowledge is not somehow second best. Acquiring natural knowledge is a divine mandate, one of the chief ways in which man carries out his dominion labors, and and an expression of the godlike status as the divine image bearer, knowing the creation, guiding and controlling it to glorious end. The various natural sciences represent many such authorities, who, through careful investigation, experimentation, and reasoning, about natural phenomena have built up a wealth of knowledge useful to humanity. And the process by which scientific research becomes authoritative contains many ideas which are not unfamiliar to the Reformed theologians. I'll give you four examples, and I I bet there's probably more, but this is what I came up with. First, experiments must be repeatable, that is, not idiosyncratic of the experimenter or his apparatus. This is intended to guard against a host of errors, intentional or not consciously known. The demand for repeatability recognizes not only the persistent fallibility of human actions and thought, but also the possibility of acting deceitfully. Scientific research is carried out in a context which implicitly accepts the reality of sin in human nature. A good scientist is a good Calvinist. Second, experiments performed are preferable to experiments only conceived. And this is what I said about going to the world Asking nature, there have been many famous thought experiments, such as Einstein's consideration of clocks moving near the speed of light. But it was the perturbations of the perihelion of Mercury and observations of displaced starlight passing near the surface of the sun, which convinced the scientific community that general relativity was to be accepted over its Newtonian predecessor. Uh, If you don't follow that, uh, the point is simply that um, the experiment was more convincing than the the, uh, thought experiment. Scientific theories must answer to the world. It seems a rather simple point, but there are some who take theory to mean fancy rather than fact. Darwin is particularly accused on this point, but we must remember that aside from being a theorizer, he was an excellent observer and experimentalist in the life sciences. His reputation was not originally built on his book On the Origin of Species in 1859, but on what was published before that. Without such a reputation already established, Origin might not have been so successful. Research in the natural sciences has boundaries. It cannot go wherever it likes, but must stay within the confines 
of what the physical world allows. Speculation about multiverses, for instance, has been criticized by Christians and non-Christian cosmologists alike because it is simply speculation. In the moral sphere, it is widely acknowledged that boundaries are a good thing, and the process of scientific research includes them. In this respect, Cauchy's point expressed above is well taken. Third, scientific research is a corporate endeavor. This is more true now than it has ever been before. The image of the scientific hero working alone at his bench is very much a thing of the past, if it ever truly existed at all. While teamwork is quite ancient, the distinction between first author and last author on a scientific paper has become commonplace and is not unlikely for there to be several dozen names in between. The ever-increasing social aspect of scientific research lends it further credibility, and not just with the plurality involved, but simply because it makes it more human. Adam was never alone. He was in fellowship with God, soon became the beneficiary of a wife, and then children. Though scientific communities war over particular ideas, the very fact that they form communities lends further reinforcement to the legitimacy of their work. And this might not seem as, as strong a point, but you, you have to remember that we're in an age now where the devil is a blogger, and individual opinion uh, tends to run rampant. So I think this lends credibility to science. Fourth, this is my last uh, example here, science by its persistent nature implicitly acknowledges that in a certain respect, nature is set against us. It does not give up its treasures and secrets willingly. The effect of the fall is not just agricultural, but epistemological as well. Knowledge of the natural world only comes by the sweat of the brow. Due to the fall, which has altered all of creation, we must dig and search out the understanding of the world. Scientists expect this in the course of their research, acknowledging the fallenness of the natural world, even if they do not explain it in those terms. So for these reasons, and perhaps others, I'd be happy to hear of other, other examples if you have them, Christians should welcome scientific knowledge in general. It is one of the more reliable resources because it is generated by processes which implicitly follow numerous Christian assumptions. I'm not saying that science is incorruptible or has no contemptuous persons or conclusions. Yet on the whole, it should be recognized as an authority to be respected. It can be respected too highly in certain instances, and we need to have a critical eye towards it. But there is no justification for an outright denial of its legitimacy. So knowledge about the natural world given to us through science is a product of human powers and human powers alone. There is no fault in this, but it simply underlines the fact that we are creatures acting in a creaturely way. We do not, in the course of our experience with, with an investigation of the physical world, by addition, somehow ascend to the knowledge of God. Such would be the ultimate hubristic act, the same colossal failure of creatures of greater power and knowledge than ourselves. Rather, we ought to regard our knowledge of the world as little creations, like unto the work of the Creator in his making the things in reality. Our process of discovery is as much one of building and assembling. The history of science is filled with examples of how we have fashioned and refashioned our understanding of the physical world in new and drastically different ways, each serving different ends with varying degrees of success. Do not misunderstand me, though. I'm not saying that the history of scientific revolutions is an argument for the ultimate contingency of science and thus a reason to question it. Indeed, a moment of hesitation is often warranted, but the history of scientific revolutions 
teaches quite the opposite. In fact, it makes a theological point. In our making of scientific knowledge, we are continually striving to act like our Creator, to best approximate to the one true act of creation which He has once performed. Our scientific endeavors seek to attain to some model of not only creation, but also divine providence, as we seek to give a more perfect representation of His ordering hand in our scientific laws. It is here that Christian theology offers an explanation for the tension between scientific realism and anti-realism. Our work is like unto that of the Creator, but given in a creaturely form. It is necessary to pause for a moment because I am conscious of the fact that I have not spoken much of sin, particularly the noetic effect of sin. This might be undermined. When I say that the scientists, unqualified as believing or unbelieving, seeks to create a more perfect representation of reality as formed by God, I recognize that sin actually attempts to undo this project. A scientist, in his sin, is no less bent on denying worship to God as someone in any other profession. But the sinner not only lives under common grace, but also lives a contradictory life, one in which he must assume the divine nature in order to reject it. This means that even though his heart is bent against God, his head and his hands were originally built for worship. He may be a sinful man, but he's still a man, a son of Adam's. So then, finally, supreme authority. The aim of all this is to give a theological exposition of why it is acceptable for multiple authorities to remain in force, namely the Bible and the natural sciences. The tension between these two authorities has been with us for at least two centuries, though you could argue two millennia, and shows no signs of going away. Further articulations or potential resolutions of this problem have not really advanced during that period, making this one of the newest of classic problems in theology and philosophy. I'm suggesting that we put this problem on par with the problem of evil, or predestination versus free will, or the two natures of Christ, or the threeness and oneness of the Trinity. I mention those examples in particular because as theologians, we've become accustomed to live with certain tensions. Now, of course, there are many theologians, perhaps even some in this room, who are unhappy with such tensions and do everything in their power to eliminate them from their theologies. So, for instance, unhappy with the tension between predestination and free will, one may choose an Arminian or Molinist route. Historically, the Reformed and Presbyterian theologians have rejected these options, arguing that biblically we are bound to accept both free will and predestination. Hence, the argument I am going to make will be more readily accepted by a theologian based within one of those traditions, or at least very close to them. In fact, one of the corollaries to my argument is that one's discomfort and agitation with the competing claims of the Bible versus the natural sciences is inversely proportional to one's commitment to Reformed theology. Happy to address that in questions. We admit tensions in theology, and I'll pick one of the more ancient examples, which is deeply embedded in Christian theology, Protestant and Roman Catholic alike. Consider the two natures of Christ, which was mentioned earlier, fully God and fully man, established within our confessional traditions of the Council of Chalcedon. In the debate, Nestorius emphasized the humanity of Christ, fearing that the Theotokos language placed the deity of Christ at risk. Whether or not Nestorius himself was a Nestorian, I leave that to the side. Eutyches was not quite on the opposite extreme, but essentially denied the humanity of Christ by merging the two natures into yet a third distinct kind of entity. 
The resulting decree of the church, which is accepted by all who call on the name of Jesus, was one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. In Christ, if, if Christ, who is Lord over all creation, the second Adam, and the supreme picture of God's image as man should have such a profound tension of principles within him, should it surprise us so much that such a pattern should be found within the other things which he has made in this world. As I illustrated in the beginning, our lives are full of conflicting roles. Many times without us being conscious of these tensions. In fact, such contradictions in the way we think about things is often considered virtuous, is more wise, more mature, at least more human. This is not a leap into irrationalism, but a plea to recognize what we already take for granted. And the reason that living and thinking in this way is acceptable follows what I've said, said above. We are finite creatures faced with an infinite God and a practically infinite world. When we are faced with incomprehensible things, we approximate, make rough and ready rules, conceptualize, categorize, divide, and conquer, hopefully. Our knowledge is derivative, something less, something imperfect, fully adequate for the task, but subject to revision. A proper doctrine of man helps to deal with the question of competing authorities. How, then, do we respond to competing doctrines in theology, that is, competing authorities? Well, one, we allow limitations to our expressions, knowing they are finite. Westminster Confession of Faith has a, a good example in chapter 1, section 10, where it says, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. So there's a principle of revision, provisional revision there. Our theological expressions, however, carefully considered and well-meant, are always subject to imperfection and improvement. They are no less true for being imperfect, but do not attain to the perfection of the scriptures themselves, which have come directly from the mouth of God. Two, we admit certain oppositions, at least until we are able to find some better way of expressing things. In fact, as I suggested earlier, this is a hallmark of Reformation and post-Reformation dogmatics, that we use rational language and theology without submitting to rationalism. We are neither trapped by the univocal essentialism of Aristotelian Thomism, nor poles such as imminence and transcendence in modern theology. Reformed theologian, theologians have a qualified rationality. The qualification comes from their doctrine of man, which keeps the created man below the divine creator. Likewise, we should employ a similar attitude when we come to questions of the theology of creation, in comparison with what we find in a rational investigation of nature. So, as we would hold up both free will and predestination as parallel principles, we should allow a similar sort of comparison. That is not to say, that's not to say that comparing a theology of creation and natural science is quite the same as comparing two doctrines within a system of theology. However, in both cases, we're comparing equally human and finite representations of realities with extension beyond our immediate perception of them. Natural science and the science of God have this in common. We do not comprehend the subject in either case. 
So if we can allow in our practical life the tension of competing rules and authorities, and if such a fundamental set of oppositions may happily be a part of our theology, without the denigration of it, why then should we be so much more upset to find some fundamental oppositions between our theology and the natural sciences? Are we not justified theologically to keep both our best theology and our best natural science side by side? Why must one or the other be destroyed? Let us see how this approach works out using the most pressing of all examples, human origins. The best of our natural science argues that humans evolved from more primitive species that we have, have in, um, that have common ancestors with other presently existing non-human species. In this story, there was no first man, or if there was, we can find his history on a developmental continuum. So goes the story of evolution, human evolution. Our best theology teaches us from the Old Testament and the New that Adam was created by God as a unique first man from dirt and that his wife Eve was created from a piece of Adam. These are two totally incompatible accounts of human origins. So, is it a, is it a matter of one being right and the other being wrong? Perhaps. But for the moment, it is only perhaps. Both theology and natural science are speaking from their relevant domains of authority, according to the well-honed rules of their respective disciplines. On the side of theology, we know that the gospel message itself is at stake. This was explained in the previous uh, Stephen's talk. It's at stake since without the principle of federal headship, rightfully understood, as Stephen qualified, Christ's atonement doesn't make any sense. Adam must be the first unique man. No less, on the side of science, we recognize that simpler and simpler species can be organized, either by external observations or genetic ones, into a tree-like natural history of descent. The most rational, causal explanation for the phenomena is an actual history of common descent. This is not bad science. It's just simply how it's done. We look for the most reasonable causal account given the data, and common descent is it. So here we have two competing authorities, clearly in conflict. Will we weaken one in order to strengthen the other? Will this make our thinking go more smoothly? Will it make our thinking any better? These are two separate things. The problem here is not that Satan wields science as a weapon or that our theology is parochial. Both can be true, but I don't think that is the case here. We are talking about our best science and our best theology. I think federal headship of Adam is our best theology. We must recognize, though, that theology and the natural sciences do not speak exactly the same language. In most cases, this has little concern for us, if we're honest, really. But on the question of human origins, the difference becomes obvious. Yet we are not worried because our doctrine of man explains why this is so. We are vice-regents. Vice-regents, not regents, not kings. We are finite and limited. Our knowledge is derivative, secondary, reconstructive, not original, primary, or determinative of reality. Our conceptual categories are, as the late scholastics used to say, inadequate concepts of the thing. This applies to our theology as well as to our natural science. Natural science. Each is an authority in its own right, in a perfectly appropriate way. There is little reason for us to destroy one for the sake of the other. And I'm speaking here to both sides. Returning to the question of human origins, 
Are we then to accept two conflicting stories? I'm suggesting that while that is not ideal, it is preferable to hastily eliminating one side or the other. Just as the wisdom literature, the Old Testament teaches us that wisdom lies in managing a set of rules that don't apply in every situation, we should take a similar approach here. In the name of rationality, we should certainly continue to seek a more seamless account, which will yet include both our best theology and our best science. However, reason and wisdom do not always agree. I am perfectly happy for a scientist to reason according to evolutionary theory, as long as it does not mean rejecting our best theology. This is not a return to complementarity, which you'll find in the writings of Donald Mackay, and also picked up by Alistair McGrath. Theology and the natural sciences, theology and the natural sciences on some points are not complementary, not now. I'm talking about two different discourses seeking complementarity. I like Donald McLeod's conclusion to his discussion of the Christological debates uh, leading up to the Council of Chalcedon. He said, These were traumatic times for the Church, and the story of the Christological controversies is not always an edifying one. The successful champions of orthodoxy were not unfailingly scrupulous in their methods of debate, nor guiltless of ambition and intrigue. On occasion, the vanquished heretic was much the more attractive and saintly personality. But through the collision of theories and the clash of personalities, the basic axioms of Christology were laid down with such precision and clarity that they have served as parameters for all subsequent reflection. Now, I think we could all freely admit there have been some fairly unpleasant aspects to the base in science and religion. And I'm not talking about Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Francis Crick, Will Provine, Carl Sagan, Jacques Fanud, and you can go all the way back to T.H. Huxley. And the, and the French philosophes before him. I'm referring to debates within Protestant churches, churches which are otherwise confessionally bound. This is a sign of the times when supposedly confessional traditions are leaning more on the principles of reasoning than on the resources of their confession. In dealing with the clashing authorities of Christian theology and the natural sciences, I think we tend both to overestimate its significance and also underestimate its difficulty. To reach a consensus like unto that in the two natures of Christ would be an admirable goal. But if we can take a lesson from that debate, we should not be surprised if that consensus includes an element of principles in balance. As far as I have seen, very, very few seem willing to accept that as a possibility. But the theology of our historic creeds lend legitimacy to such an approach. So, be happy to... Ian, you want to lead off the questions? Well, I think you have um, fulfilled one of the primary prerequisites of a paper, of a 